It's 8.11 on your Wednesday morning, and it's this time that we love to bring on our expert to help answer all of your COVID-19 questions. So many people have so many questions still to this day. So joining us once again is Associate Professor of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary, Dr. Craig Janney. Hi, Craig. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. As always, long list of questions and they continue to roll in. It just seems that people, we have so many questions and we're just, they're not uh, obviously sort of, you know, getting answered or, or new ones pop up. So we'll start with this. When is a pandemic considered over? So when is it, so I guess there's two answers to that. One would be we either eliminate the virus altogether, which probably is not going to happen with this particular one. It's in the community and it seems to be easily spread. So this is going to be very hard to completely eliminate. Once it becomes established and becomes everyday virus, such as the common cold, it would no longer be a pandemic. It'd be something we call an endemic disease. So just another part of our human exposure in daily life. So unfortunately, I think that's where COVID is going to establish itself at a low level of transmission basically for the ongoing future here's a very specific one are you less likely to catch the virus through your mouth versus the eyes or nose in other words are we safer breathing through our mouths I don't know if there's been any clear evidence on that. We do know that all three, nose, mouth, and eyes, are all very infectable. So I, I don't think I would hedge my bets and, and basically squeeze my nose and run around the community. So we got to protect everything. <laughs> Maybe the ears are the best place. Yeah, we can only right. breathe through our ears. Um, if no new cases for one month, theoretically, where does the virus hide and live? Is it in the asymptomatic people? So, yes. It can be in the asymptomatic people. The other thing we tend to forget about when we look at a community is that we are not a fixed population of people. So people continually come in and move out of our community. And that could be something as simple as business business travel from another part of the world. So somebody can easily reintroduce the virus even after we've had a, a, a nice run of no cases here in, for example, Calgary or Alberta. Is breastfeeding okay for new moms? Yes, and it's encouraged. So we have no evidence that the virus can be transmitted that way. We also know that if the mom has been exposed, one of the first parts of our immune system is to make antibodies, so these specific immune molecules, and those are passed on in breast milk. So this is the best way to protect uh, babies. Speaking of, can mosquitoes spread COVID? Fortunately not. So with all the rain this week, uh, we're probably going to have a nice bloom of them by the weekend. Uh, No, this is not a bloodborne disease and there's no evidence it can survive in mosquitoes to be passed on. In regards to asymptomatic people, when are they contagious? For how long and how contagious are they? That's a great question. Mm. We don't know. And that's the big problem. So without knowing how easily the virus spreads from asymptomatic people, they become a big question mark in how we model the disease, predict where it's going to move next, and predict the risk in the community. So this is why Alberta has brought in and the Calgary Health Region has brought in asymptomatic patient tracing. Uh, So if, if you wanted to get screens, there was a window to get screened even if you're asymptomatic. And that's to really help inform us how many people are in the community and whether there's any contact tracing with the asymptomatic people that lead to infection. Craig, do you expect a second wave of coronavirus? I mean, I know we're hearing a lot that from the experts. I don't, I don't know if it's going to fit the classic model of a wave where the first wave disappears and it comes back again. I think what we're seeing is that we're going to have an ongoing plateau here for quite a while, and there may then be an uptick, which would fit the, the criteria of a second wave. But I don't think we're going to see a situation where the virus is gone, and then a couple months later it actually comes back. I think we're going to see low-level transmission with the occasional hotspot or spike coming in the fall. 
Again, buildings with air conditioning, heating systems spread the virus, uh, similar to Legionnaire's disease. Yeah, unfortunately, we think it can. We think that this has been one of the key features on, for example, the cruise ship outbreaks. So once somebody was infected with the air recycled through the cruise ship, there was a risk that that's how the virus was moving. We're not entirely clear on how efficient it is, but anytime the air is moving between rooms, there is a risk we're moving that virus around. Okay, question here. I've heard to avoid sushi as it's made by hand and not a hot food. For example, cooked at a high temperature and you can't reheat it at home. Is it safe? Yeah, so it's a great question. The, the, there's a couple of aspects that one is this is not foodborne. So eating it, you will not get infected. The real risk, though, comes with if somebody had the virus and handles your food, and then you handle the food. So there is a bit of a risk with that. Theoretically, it's higher for raw foods um, than cooked foods. But again, I don't think we've seen any cases in, a, in Canada, let alone elsewhere in our reporting areas, where somebody has caught it, for, for example, from sushi. But we are recommending, if you're doing takeout food, to you know, uh, aim towards the hot food that can be transferred to your own plate, reheated, and you dispose of all outer surfaces that somebody may have touched when preparing the food. Here's a timely one. Is there any update on the study of hydroxychloroquine as far as a treatment for COVID patients? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a number of studies going uh, on right now, including some right here in Alberta that are looking at it. The early studies seem to show that there was no protection. Now, this was targeting a specific population of patients, and what we saw was no increased survival uh, of patients that were in the intensive care unit on hydroxychloroquine. There is possibility that it could help mitigate symptoms in mild patients, uh, and those studies are ongoing. But right now, we have no clear evidence that it's protective, and we do have very clear evidence that there are side effects. So this is not something we should be just taking uh, ad hoc without uh, prescription from a doctor or, or and especially supervision from a doctor. Well, here's a, a very detailed, uh, very, I guess, to the point question, Dr. Janney. How do autoimmune disease patients handle the virus? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so unfortunately, there's no single answer. Autoimmune diseases are a huge spectrum of diseases, and depending on, on the organ system they target, they can impact the virus differently. We do know that most people that get severe infections do have sort of a hyperinflammation. So people with autoimmune disease are definitely in that category in general for, for complications. Also, diseases such as diabetes, which type 1 is an autoimmune disease, can play a role also with this virus. So unfortunately, anybody with a, an immune dysfunction, immune um, uh, overactivity, or, or even immunosuppression can uh, have adverse um, complications when infected with COVID-19. Dr. Janney, how much less infectious and deadly would COVID be once we have a vaccine? Should we assume that the vaccine will mean we never get it or just get it less? That's uh, another great question. So uh, we think that the vaccine is not going to change the virus itself. So if you're still at risk and you happen to catch it, uh, th there is the, the risk of, of severe disease. What the vaccine is going to do is it's going to make it much more difficult to catch, even if you yourself, for example, cannot be vaccinated. It's an immunocompromised patient. If everybody around you is vaccinated, it's going to be very difficult for that virus to make its way to you for an infection. So as a community, we will have uh, overall protection if we can get a a functional vaccine here in the near future. Uh, you uh, talked about autoimmune diseases and uh, diabetes. This one kind of is uh, an offshoot of that. If your high blood pressure and diabetes are under control, does it make a difference on the severity of the disease? So 
under control absolutely helps the, the disease. The problem is, is the disease can start to change those underlying conditions. So although normal medication keeps it under control, once we get the, the infection, other parts of our immune system kick in, and the drugs we're using to maintain our blood pressure and or diabetes may not be uh, perfectly matched anymore. So it's definitely, if you have an underlying condition and you believe you, you are sick, absolutely seek medical attention, and they'll be able to help set this straight. Tough one to answer, perhaps, but do you feel it's okay to go into a family member's home for a visit? So, uh, again, no single answer to this. It, it really depends on the situation. So, for example, if you're visiting a, a family member who is in an at-risk group, so a senior citizen or somebody with an underlying medical condition, and you yourself are, for example, at high risk of exposure, frontline health workers, something of, of that nature, then maybe we have to reconsider those visits. If, however, the, the person you're visiting has been self-isolated for, for a number of weeks, and you yourself are also self-isolated, then there's very little risk. So it is is really a case-by-case situation as to how much risk is involved with these visits. Let's cut to the chase here, Dr. Janney. These questions are sent in by listeners. (laughs) Can we uh, spread COVID through sweat or sperm? So uh, we still don't know uh, specifically about sperm. There was one report from Korea that suggests it could Sweat, no, but what we do see is that if people, for example, are out jogging and working up a sweat, they're also breathing heavier and they're putting the droplets into the air. So there, there was some advice that, you know, when out running or something like that to increase the physical distance a little bit to avoid that enhanced droplet formation from landing, for example, on the person running behind. So uh, sweat, no, other, uh, other fluids, we're still, uh, still waiting for data. All right, we'll have lots more questions for you. We didn't get to them all, but uh, more next week. Dr. Janney, thank you again for joining us appreciate your time okay take care that's dr craig janney associate professor department of microbiology immunology and infectious diseases at the university of calgary and if we didn't get to your question promise we'll get to it next week Seven ten on the morning news calgary police chief mark newfeld joins us this morning for his regular discussion on crime with a focus this month on how the covid19 pandemic is affecting police officers and law enforcement in our city good morning chief Good morning, Andrew. Well, let's start with with any trends because we do uh, touch base with you every month. And I'm wondering, you know, from uh, last month to maybe even as we moved into uh, uh, beyond into March, are we seeing any crime trend changes during this time of pandemic? Yeah, it's a good good question. We've been watching this pretty close because, of course, we're in unprecedented times with really not a lot to compare this to. So we watch it week by week. And so what I can tell you, uh, the good news, is that uh, crime is down in virtually all categories. If we look at the last couple of weeks and compare those to the same couple of weeks in 2019. Um, so that's a good thing. Um, we've talked before about the fact that we wouldn't expect uh, break-and-enters to people's homes to be up, given people are, are mostly in their homes now. Uh, but we were seeing an increase in um, break-ins to commercial areas, with non-essential stores being closed and businesses being closed. But we've been actually able to get uh, on top of that here as well, and that's actually gone down as well. If we're seeing any increases anywhere, it's in uh, complaints of disorder, um, so basically like suspicious persons or unwanted guests or these types of things, uh, a lot of that in the downtown, uh, but some of the outlying districts as well. And then also we've seen uh, some uh, small increases in domestic violence reporting. 
So when I say reporting, that's in relation to um, calls for assistance and advice and to mediate and that sort of thing, not in actual incidents of violence, but just uh, reporting in relation to domestic relationships. Does that worry you that the, the number of calls for domestic incidents is going down when, you know, everything we hear is that, you know, with people kind of being stuck in a home together, that that may actually not be the reality? Yeah, for sure. So actually, we don't know what it means, right? On the one hand, I think it's uh, you look at it and say the numbers being down is hopefully a good thing. We've been involved in some uh, social media and other campaigns with our partners there just to let people know that we're still out here and the services are still available, even though they may look a little bit different. Um, so the increased calls may suggest people are, are you know, availing themselves of that. Um, but again, this is one of the most underreported crimes there yeah. is, even uh, when there isn't a pandemic. So um, with the small sample that we have here, it's hard to know exactly what the numbers mean. What about, uh, you know, social distancing uh, when it comes to enforcement from the CPS? Has, has that increased? Has it remained the same? Is this something that the officers uh, are involved with, or is it more of a bylaw thing at this point? Uh, it's been a combination. So between uh, public health inspectors, bylaw, and our officers, uh, all three uh, levels are involved in the enforcement of the orders. So for the most part, uh, we've been going to, I would say, on average of about 30 calls a day since the uh, pandemic began that, are, that have some sort of um, connection to COVID-19. Um, in terms of the amount of enforcement that we've been doing, our approach has been largely uh, education first and then enforcement if it needs to be. I think the total number of tickets uh, that we've uh, issued as the Calgary Police Service is sitting at about 33. And again, those are generally for pretty blatant um, disregard of the uh, public health orders. We are behaving ourselves. I like to hear that. Uh, Chief, speaking of distancing, we often get the question, I'm sure you do too, why are officers not social distancing? You see two police officers often sitting in a car together. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but do you want to answer that? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it's it's one that probably, uh, you know, people probably think is common sense, but it's good just to, uh, good to address it. So we... we uh, as the police, we follow the public health guidance uh, the same way everybody else does uh, to the extent that we're able and, and we try to manage the risk around that. So, you know, we're not, uh, you know, gathering in groups larger than 15. We're trying to uh, make sure that we're physical distancing um, when we can. Um, when we haven't been able to do that, we've obtained uh, exemptions to some of the orders for some of the activities that we've had to carry on with. One of the, probably the biggest challenges of the most obvious things is, as, as you mentioned, Sue, is riding around in police cars. So what we've ended up doing in relation to that is we try to use as many one-person or deploy as many one-person uh, units as we can to, to decrease that, uh, that uh, contact. But, of course, we simply, in the city this size, we simply don't have enough cars mm-hmm. to deploy everybody in one-person units. So one of the ways we manage the risk, then, is to make sure that we partner up the individuals who are working together in, in vehicles um, and keep those partnerships consistent over time so that we're not exposing unnecessarily different people to different people, which would increase risk. We, have, uh, we do recommend uh, the use of masks to our folks. We haven't gone as, as uh, far as to mandate that just yet. We recognize that our officers are in their what's essentially a mobile office for uh, for a 12-hour shift, mm-hmm. which is a very long time. We had issues with people's glasses fogging up and that yep. sort of thing. Um, yeah, and I, I imagine the listeners have experienced that as well. So for the most part, you know, if there's underlying conditions or something people are concerned about, we're absolutely recommending that they do do it. Mm-hmm. Um, however, we haven't mandated it because we're asking them to manage uh, risk in all kinds of uh, situations. Yeah. And so we're leaving it to them to manage this as well. What about for the public? For example, if if someone's pulled over, can they expect that to look differently when officers walk up to the vehicle? 
Oh, they may. I think it depends, uh, Andrew, on the nature of, uh, of, the, of, the, of the stop, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes uh, there's communication issues we found if you're on the side of Stony Trail or Deerfoot or whatever where the traffic is noisy. So sometimes that can be exacerbated by the fact that you're wearing some sort of a face covering. Mm-hmm. So officers will try to stay back as far as they can and observe the, uh, the uh, public health orders in uh, relation to that. Uh, and manage that risk. I, one of the things I think is important, though, is, you know, I've, I've noticed myself folks driving around with uh, masks in their vehicles, uh, even when they're by themselves. And so I appreciate that many people have uh, personal circumstances or whatever, living with people who are immunocompromised or whatever. So if you're dealing with an officer, or you have an interaction and you have a sensitivity like that, and you would just feel better if they were wearing a mask, you can certainly request that. And I, I that's sort of a common sense courtesy that they would... Uh, extend in appropriate circumstances. Good to know. Overall message, Chief, as we say goodbye and uh, we are, you know, easing ourselves into this uh, new world that uh, the business is starting to open. Anything that you want to tell Calgarians? No, I think people are doing really well. I think, you know, partially because we've had the number of uh, cases, probably two-thirds of the province's total. I think Calgarians have been really respectful of the public health orders, and um, they've recognized uh, the nature of the risk here. And so um, I think, you know, if we continue to be mindful and continue to be diligent around these orders going forward, I'm hoping that, um, you know, we'll continue to have the success that has brought us to the point where we're considering reopening. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Appreciate your time. You guys too. Thanks a lot. That's Calgary Police Chief Mark Newfeld. And it uh, looks like Alberta health officials are pleased overall with our COVID-19 numbers. But what about the rest of the country? It seems uh, we've got some positive news as a couple of our biggest provinces continue to reopen their economies. Uh, What about the latest, though? We're joined by Global's Ottawa correspondent, Abigail Beeman, as we check in across the country. Hi, Abigail. Hi, good morning. Uh, How are we faring right across Canada in terms of numbers and, uh, and reopenings, both in Ontario and Quebec? Right. Well, well, like you say, there is some optimism. Uh, yesterday, we saw three provinces report only single-digit increases in case numbers, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, and then the big story was BC, where they only had two new positive cases, something that hadn't happened since, I believe, early March. Uh, and then, like you say, the other part of this is, is reopening. So Ontario took its first big steps towards reopening yesterday. Uh, retail stores with separate storefronts um, are allowed to reopen, obviously, following physical distancing practices, a number of other types of businesses and uh, minimum contact sports allowed to start up uh, again as well. So there is a sense of uh, of reopening and, you know, I don't want to call it a return to, to normal when you're uh, sitting at a restaurant behind a, a plate of glass, yeah. you know, dividing you from the people at the table, uh, at the next over table, but some sense of, you know, everyday activities returning to normal and we saw Saskatchewan and British Columbia move into phase two of their reopenings as well. But health experts would be quick to say that we're not out of the woods yet. You know, even Ontario where we saw, saw those reopenings yesterday, they also had 427 new cases, hundreds of new cases in Quebec as well. Uh, Ontario made the decision yesterday not to reopen schools for the rest of this year. Uh, so a lot of monitoring going on and uh, with all these reopenings, a lot of people will be watching what happens in the next couple of weeks with more people uh, mingling or out and about or, or taking part in these activities. What does that do to the case count that's a big question Mm -hmm. as well abigail we had some questions about when the border would reopen between canada and the u.s we now know it's going to be another month so i guess the next question that follows up is what needs to happen for that border to reopen 
That's right. And nobody is giving us, you know, some sort of formula or a magic equation in which, you know, this number of cases in, in these states mean that the, the border will reopen again. And that's, uh, I suppose, so that officials can be flexible in their decision making. But we know that provinces at this point have been pushing the prime minister to extend that deadline. Uh, provinces saying that now is not the time to reopen. We know that there, there's that push there. We also know that the prime minister said that this is something that they're looking at very closely and on a week by week basis. So, the, you know, they are prepared uh, to pivot when they feel that that the time is right, but that right now the time isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, the chief public health officer saying that uh, what happens south of the border is really important. And obviously that's a huge part of this. How is the U.S. dealing with their caseload? How are we dealing with it uh, here? And, and what are those numbers like? But uh, unfortunately for, I think, many people who would be interested in seeing some sort of summer vacation or something um, to that effect and, and open travel, there's no, no magic formula at this point. What about uh, another deadline that's looming? That's the return of the House of Commons. Where do negotiations stand on that front? Yeah, an important question. People have been seeing um, the uh, MPs in smaller numbers returning to the House of Commons. That will happen this afternoon. People also watching all these virtual meetings. Uh, But one of the finer points that perhaps only political nerds uh, pay attention to is that technically that's not the House of Commons resuming. All of those meetings have been uh, special committee meetings of the uh, COVID committee that has been struck up. So why is this important? Uh, Because the deal in place to allow these special kinds of committee meetings actually expires on Monday. So technically, come Monday, if there's no deal in place, you could potentially see 338 MPs coming back to the House of Commons for an official, you know, House resumption, which is uh, May 25th, the date that that's scheduled to happen. Nobody wants 338 people, plus all the staff involved, uh, sitting in one room. So that's why these negotiations are uh, important for the Liberals who are in, obviously, a minority position. We know the Conservatives have been firm all the way along that they're calling for more in-person sessions. They're, of course, fine with physical distancing um, at those sessions, but they want more chances for accountability, more in-person sessions. The interesting wrinkle that happened yesterday, the Bloc Québécois, uh, which is the the third party in the House of Commons, came out and said that unless the Liberals agree to a long list of demands from the Bloc, that they also would be pushing for more in-person sessions. And because the Liberals are in this minority government, uh, they need the support of other parties to move forward. Some of the things the Bloc have been calling for uh, uh, an economic update within the next month. Um, the Liberals to follow through on promises about incentives for people to go back to work when they're being offered the CERB, uh, the, the direct benefit uh, instead, and some sort of summer sitting. So a long list of things, be much debate. Uh, I think we'll see some of that debate uh, today or this afternoon when that smaller group returns. But uh, a deal needs to be reached at some point before Monday. Thanks for your time this morning, Abigail. Thanks. That's Abigail Beeman, Global's Ottawa correspondent. 6.08 on the morning news. Joe Biden says that if he becomes president, he will scrap the permits for the Keystone XL pipeline. Is this even a possibility? And if so, how would it impact not just here in Canada, but also in the U.S.? We're joined by Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University, with his insight. Good morning, Marvin. Good morning. Let's talk about this to start. It, would this even be a possibility since we've already got things underway toward this project? Well, of course, uh, government can do whatever it wants to do. So if, if it wants to change the rules, it can do that. But I would expect a gigantic lawsuit for damages because this pipeline, as you just noted, is under construction. Uh, just to take us back in time, President Obama 
this is obviously five years ago, was debating Keystone XL. And initially it looked like he was going to turn it down because many states didn't want it. But once uh, TransCanada Energy uh, met with those states, worked out their differences, they actually all those states got on board. I had assumed five years ago Obama would approve it, but very much towards the end of his presidency and with Joe Biden at his side, he said no, he wasn't going to approve it. Then, no surprise, Donald Trump gets elected, and within his first month of taking office in, uh, in early 2017, uh, Donald Trump reverses that decision and says, I'm all for it, let's get going. So it's been now uh, almost four years, and construction has started. Now, most of the construction has been on the Canadian side. Uh, Donald Trump has given various permits for the American side, and to date, environmentalists have been able to get court injunctions, the most recent one, involved the pipeline crossing some waterways, rivers, and uh, the court said, well, you haven't done enough due diligence. We've heard this before. But nonetheless, it is underway, and to suddenly pull the rug out from underneath, I would think the American government would be on the tune, on the hook for billions of dollars in, in damages to TC Energy. And Marvin, would that be lawsuits coming from both sides of the border, both Canada and the U.S. then? Yeah, I would think so. Uh, remember, this is an election year, and what Trump would be pointing out during the uh, presidential election is that this pipeline is going to generate uh, thousands of jobs, both for construction, but then uh, in the operation of this pipeline. As well, this pipeline would bring Canadian oil into the United States, which is part of a goal that both nations have to make North America self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. If you don't get this oil into the system in the United States, then refineries in places like New Orleans would be using Venezuelan oil or other imported oil, and that doesn't seem to be the policy that people want. So, yeah, I think you'd get lawsuits everywhere. I think a lot of the time we talk about the impact on our side of the border, but that's something that has to be, uh, you know, considered is uh, what they would be losing out on a deal like this. Just how important is Canadian oil, uh, you know, if you can talk in general terms, to the USA at this point um, being made that much more, uh, you know, useful if if this uh, project did go ahead? Well, obviously, plan A for the United States is to be totally self-sufficient and not rely on any imported oil at all if they could do that. And, of course, that requires them to uh, continue and even expand the fracking activities you see in the Midwest. Um, Assuming, just for the sake of argument, that maybe they can't quite get all the oil they want from domestic sources, then a, a reliable ally like Canada as their source of oil is clearly preferable to Middle Eastern oil or oil from Nigeria or oil from Venezuela, where regimes are not as stable, where where guarantee of supply is quite different. Now, I will point out that <laughs> even though uh, uh, potential President Biden has uh, used this to try to get some headlines, President Trump has not always been the best ally of Canada and sometimes mm-hmm. seems to forget the long-standing relationship between our two nations. But generally speaking, presidents appreciate Canada as a source of supply because we are so reliable. Marvin, from your perspective, do you think this is just, you know, blustering from Biden ahead of the election? Is just a way to appease that faction of the voting public? Well, I don't know if I use the word appease, but uh, uh, Joe Biden has a very interesting problem. Normally at this point, there would be a whole series of primaries going on in the United States that would see you do rallies and meetings, and this would get you a chance to get some momentum behind your campaign as you head towards a November election. None of that is happening. And a bit like Andrew Scheer, who gets to watch every day Prime Minister Trudeau come out and do a press conference, but he himself can't, can't seem to get much energy behind him, 
Biden is having a hard time getting energy behind his campaign. So I think what he's choosing to do is when he does make some kind of announcement, he's going for something a little extra sensational. I will also note, though, that I'm not sure this is something that will win him the election. While environmentalists would cheer what's going on here, the average American really doesn't understand anything about Keystone XL. It's it's in the middle of the country. There's not a lot of population there. I just don't think this is a winning winning uh, topic for him as he goes forward in his campaign. So this is just a you know something to get noted, um, make again, him relevant. Yeah, right? to, to to the environmentalists because yeah, Johnny Sixpack doesn't care all that much. But the other part of it is uh, when we talk about the speculation of any uh, Biden decisions, is we have no idea particularly with the current situation in the U.S. Uh, what's going to happen between now and November, or even if. That could be pushed back, uh, pushed back or changed. Yeah, I mean, all of that is quite true. We, we, we're not sure if the primaries are done, then normally that leads to conventions. These conventions have all been put on hold. Then you really get serious uh, presidential campaigning starting around Labor Day for a two-month period leading to a November election. Now, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and Christian Freeland were tried. Uh, were, were, there was an attempt to draw them into this controversy, and they didn't take the bait, and I think that's quite wise here. Uh, no, this is not Canada's position. Building the Keystone XL is part of our energy strategy, and we do see it as being environmentally positive because uh, uh, many people think if you don't build the pipeline, the oil would stay in the ground, but in fact that oil will be removed and sent by train cars, hundreds of thousands of train cars, and we all know that those have a habit of uh, becoming derailed, sometimes bursting into flames. Uh, pipelines are actually a more efficient and safer less damage-prone way of transporting oil. So Canada's behind this. And when asked, you know, would you, would you sort of go to war over this, uh, Trudeau said, well, look, we've got lots of time to chat with him. You know, we'll see if he gets elected. We'll deal with him at that point. And if he does get elected in the fall, I'm sure there would be a, a big diplomacy mission to try to soften Joe Biden's uh, stance. The most likely stance in my mind would be approving the pipeline with some extra environmental concerns. This is what we've seen with almost every pipeline being constructed I think that position is it has some movement in it. So are there any relevant sort of next steps that you'll be watching for to see what happens, or do we just wait till we get a little closer to the run-up to the presidential election? Well, I, I think this is sort of a two-day story or a four-day story. I, I think Biden, I don't think this is going to win him a lot of votes, so he'll come out with some other policy statements, and this will disappear into the background. If I was TC Energy, my answer to them would be full speed ahead. Yeah, do it quick, right? Get it done. The more you construct, the the less likely they are to dismantle it. Mm -hmm. And oddly enough, during this COVID-19 problem, TC Energy actually noted that their production was ahead of schedule. They were actually going to open this pipeline in um, sort of the middle of 2023, and it's now at least two or three months ahead of schedule because they've been able to get work done that they might not have because traffic is lower or what have you. So I would just tell them, keep going full speed ahead. Uh, yes, be concerned. Yes, continue to inform and, and certainly send information to Joe Biden's campaign. But I wouldn't make too much of this. It's, it's still six months before that election will happen. Still a ways out. Uh, thank you for your time this morning. We appreciate it, Marvin. Glad to be with you. That is Marvin Ryder, business professor, DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Coming up on 719, Calgary Board of Education began its budget deliberations yesterday afternoon. With details on what came of the meeting, we're joined this morning by CBE Chair Marilyn Dennis. Good morning, Marilyn. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So, I mean, it's obviously a a big budget, a multi-billion dollar budget. Uh, Cost-cutting measures, is that on the books? What was sort of the, the, the gist of what came out of your meeting yesterday? I know it's an ongoing process. 
Yes, yeah, so yesterday's meeting was the first opportunity that trustees, trustees had in a public meeting to take a look at the budget. Um, it will come to the trustees again next Tuesday um, for motion debate. Um, and um, hopefully ultimately approval of the budget and so um, we need to submit that budget to the province by the end of May um, and lots of conversations just around you know some adjustments that we're needing to make to make sure that we're living within our means and that we are adjusting to the new funding framework reported that there's a shortfall uh, you know that you uh, your organization needs some more money in the tens of millions of dollars how much uh, money do you think would be required to top things up to uh, run things the way the in the CBE's uh, view should be run you know we aren't talking about shortfalls and we aren't talking about more money we're really talking about how do we best support students within the budget allocations that we have and so really that's where the conversations are it's around solutions so this is the money that we have, this is the funding framework, and what do we need to do to make sure that we're maximizing dollars, stretching those dollars as far as they can go in order to you know, deliver supports to students. Is it even more difficult to do that this year, Marilyn, in terms of, you know, we don't really know what the next school year is going to look like, whether, you know, we have to spread out the kids and have fewer in the room. Does that mean hiring new teachers in a world where teachers' jobs have been lost recently? There is a lot of uncertainty moving into next school year, just in terms of the you know COVID nineteen situation. As you know, it's uh, very fluid, and you know we're continuing to work with the province around what a reentry plan would look like for students. Um, certainly, following the lead of the province, following the lead of the chief medical officer of health, and uh, we'll continue to have those conversations as we prepare to welcome students. You know, we've obviously become very familiar with online uh, learning over the past uh, eight or nine weeks. Uh, do you think that that could be a component that we do see, uh, you know, carrying through into the new school year and beyond? I think that's a scenario that we need to be prepared for. Um, you know, even if it's a combination of in-class learning and at-home learning, um, I think that we would be naive to not be thinking that that could be a possibility. Um, but certainly, you know, we, you know, we look forward to the day that we can welcome students and all students back into our schools. Uh, but in the meantime, certainly we're thinking about what... Uh, post-COVID-19 education will look like for Calgary students. Before we let you go, Marilyn, just to go back to what you said at the beginning, are, you're, the board is not expecting a, a, a deficit or a shortfall in this coming school year? Uh, we are expecting to make decisions that make sure that we're living within our means and that we are you know, allocating dollars, dollars the best we can to support students. Thank you so much for your time this morning. We appreciate it. You're most welcome. That is CBE Chair Marilyn Dennis. Coming up later in the program, in fact, just before 8 o'clock, we're going to hear from SOS, Support Our Students, mm -hmm. and uh, their view on uh, what has been coming out. Yesterday, again, very preliminary. We're certainly not, uh, you know, wrapping this up with a bow. We've got till the end of May, and I'm sure we'll have many more discussions, many more ideas. Most definitely, because the province said it's giving $20.6 more mm -hmm. in funding than the previous year, but the CBE, uh, all reports leading into yesterday's meeting, said they were expecting 3,000 new students would open three new schools, and we're anticipating a $62 million shortfall. So yeah, where, what, it, what will it look like when... And that's the big question, when yep. we get back. And obviously this was a discussion that was sparked well before the pandemic. So I know there's a lot of people invested in this uh, because you've got your students, you've got the For board, sure. you've got the province, lots of players. So again, much more uh, coming up at about uh, 749 this morning as well. 749 on the morning news. The Calgary Board of Education began its budget deliberations yesterday as members tried to envision what classes will look like in September amid the coronavirus pandemic. 
We're joined by spokesperson for Support Our Students, SOS, Barb Silva, for her reaction of yesterday's meeting. Good morning, Barb. Good morning. It's a tough one because it's the initial meeting, and I know that we've got many more weeks ahead of us, but according to a, a release, the province will provide almost $21 million more in funding. CBE is saying that uh, it's facing an anticipated $62 million shortfall. What do you make of that? Yeah, well, I think that definitely the, the cash that's coming in as, an, as a one-time injection from the government isn't going to meet the needs, uh, obviously, around transportation and around population growth. So the budget that was discussed yesterday doesn't even really take into account the measures that are going to be needed to comply with whatever policies come forward around COVID-19. So what are you expecting going forward? I mean, it's ongoing discussions through this budget deliberation. Do you you go, are you on hand for, for them or is the public even allowed to be there? I'm not even sure on that answer. The public can attend the, the public meetings that are held on Tuesdays, um, and those are actually, you know, now on online meetings, obviously, because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm a little disappointed that there hasn't been more conversation. I'm a little bit disappointed even that there hasn't been some more leadership for the ministry. It seems odd to be having discussions around a budget when you don't know what you're budgeting for. Mm-hmm. So as of right now, the conversations are pretty status quo. You know, they're they're building a budget based on... Um, business as usual. And I don't think that we can expect to go back to school in a business as usual circumstance. Are we still going to have one caretaker per 400 students? Are we still going to have classrooms uh, meant for 20 but housing 30 kids? And if not, we need more staff. So it's a bit cart before the horse um, and it's already dealing with cuts at a time when I think if we're going to go back to school effectively and safely for both students and workers alike, we're actually going to need more money. So you mentioned a couple of suggestions on uh, things that may have to come up into the conversation. So what would you suggest? We put this off for, for a couple months, or do you think that September is too early or too pie in the sky to bring uh, students back? Well, I think everyone has to take some initiatives on their own part. So the CBE actually should be um, advocating for what they feel are the best circumstances in the absence of the ministry coming forward with, with policies for the province. Um, I don't know when they're going to come out with that, and we haven't heard of extensive discussions around what that looks like. But the CBE has a responsibility to the students in its school board, and so they should be coming forward with, uh, they know what, what, what the size of their classrooms are. So they can very easily divide that area of a classroom by, um, you know, by two two square meters, and and come up with what their class sizes should be. That will help them differentiate how many teachers they're going to need going forward under the under the pandemic um, circumstances. They also know how many caretakers they're going to need. So I I would hope that the CBE would be take some initiative in planning for a worst-case scenario and a business-as-usual scenario and putting that forward to the government. Uh, you know, and, and we'll be watching and listening for that as their deliberations move forward. I want to, uh, before we let you go, touch on the transportation fees that were released on Friday. Uh, your thoughts on that? Well, we're disappointed, obviously, anytime there are further barriers put in front of families to access public education. Having said that, we knew that this was coming. We've been warning about this for a few years now. Calgary has more choice in education than any other jurisdiction almost in the country. And so when you are offering um, an infinite menu of choices and then covering the cost for that while the ministry is underfunding chronically Mm -hmm. transportation, this is the inevitable outcome of that. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Barb. Thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day, guys.
That is Barb Selva from Support Our Students. 8.50 now, a lot of parents at home thinking, oh, summer camp, that just seems like a great <laughs> idea right now. Uh, kids are probably thinking the same thing. Joining us to talk about summer camps, what are available for kids, what will be open, how will they operate during the restrictions right now. Joining us is Ellen Percival, editor of Calgary's Child Magazine. Hi, Ellen. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Uh, everybody is hoping there'll be something and somewhere to send the kids for this summer. What's <laughs> it shaping up to be? Do you think it's going to happen? Well, you're not wrong. We've got over 60% of parents saying, yes, please, hmm. please. We need, we need, uh, I need my kids out of the house. Mm-hmm. And so, the kids are wishing the same thing, right? <laughs> exactly. As long as it's safe. Like that's the right. caveat. As all the parents are saying, I absolutely want my kids out. I want them playing. I want fresh air. I want them socializing with other children, learning new skills, but I need for them to be safe. And so um, the camps are responding as they do in our Calgary community. There are many parents, too, that are like, I'm not ready for this. Um, I would prefer that my child stays at home and is is, uh, entertained with a a virtual program. So we have um, camp providers are responding to both. Right there, they're going. That's okay. Some of them are doing both, and some are just focusing on one or the other. And so, um, you know, Jason from Calgary Reptile Parties is doing an amazing job of answering the needs. There, are, he's got online camps and he has in-person camps. We've got Storybook Theater has decided it's for now safer to to do an online camp, and we're really excited to see those. Butterfield Acres is doing in person. Many of the farms around Calgary will be responding, but some of them are very cautious, uh, and they want to make sure they're doing an excellent job of, of program delivery and making sure that the kids are safe. So as with parents, many of these camps are waiting a couple of weeks to see how our numbers do, to see how we respond to uh, some of the restrictions being lifted, and if anything changes in the restrictions, that they maybe can offer a little bit more of an expanded program. But you'll find dance and music and drama and art and the zoo uh, is um, Mm -hmm. doing some wonderful programming. U of Calgary, you know, they're, again, the, the bigger colleges, the university, they're just waiting. They're, they're evaluating. They want to do a really quality program um, based on the parameters in which they have. And we may see those changing. And so they will be able, again, to provide a more enhanced experience. So there's, some of them are just waiting just a little bit longer. So I think as the summer moves on, as it, you know, we get more into summer, we're going to see more and more programs opening up and responding to the needs of the parents and the kids at that time. Alan, I know you'll have all the latest and any updates at calgaryschild.com, right? Absolutely. Perfect. If anybody needs drama camp, we're having that pretty much daily at our house right now. So there's another option for you, too. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for your time this morning, Ellen. Thanks. Bye for now. That is Ellen Percival, editor of Calgary's Child Magazine.